Open your Bibles, if you will, to Second Chronicles chapter 36 as we conclude what has been our study in this uh, historical book of the Old Testament. We will read and consider tonight verses 1 to 23, which is the chapter. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, the, 20, the 36th chapter of Second Chronicles. The people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Then the king of Egypt deposed him in Jerusalem and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And the king of Egypt made Eliakim his brother king over Judah and Jerusalem and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But Necho took Jehoahaz's brother and carried him to Egypt. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried part of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his palace in Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and the abominations that he did, what was found against him, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah, and Jehoiakim, his son, reigned in his place. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In the spring of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon with the precious vessels of the house of the Lord and made his brother Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful following the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, but he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy." Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord might by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for the ancient word because it's your living word. And as you recorded this for a generation long ago, we also know you intended it for us to consider tonight. Speak, Lord, your servants are hearing. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The final chapter of Second Chronicles uh, provides living proof of two somber statements that are found in Romans chapter 8. 
Romans 8, verse 8 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, by that expression, in the flesh, Paul refers to men and women in the sinful condition in which they are born, apart from the regenerating influence of God's Holy Spirit. To be in the flesh is to be controlled by sin and worldliness. It is spiritually to be unable to heed God's word. Such people, he says, do not please the Lord. They cannot because they are governed by sin and God hates sin. Now the final four kings of Judah during the fateful 22 years that led up to the city's judgment and destruction, they shared that depraved condition. For all the differences between them, they all lived in the flesh. But Romans 8.13 explains the inevitable consequence. He said in verse 8, if you live in the flesh, you cannot please God. But then he adds, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. 2 Chronicles 36 presents this truth in living color. By abandoning the Lord's ways and leading the nation into unbelief and ungodliness, These final kings who reigned in Jerusalem presided over a death that was waiting to happen. An autopsy of the patient would reveal that the kingdom of Judah over which they reigned died of sin and unbelief. Leslie Allen compares these final four kings of Judah, all the sons of godly Josiah, one of them was a grandson, he compares them to the Gadarene pigs. You remember the parable or the miracle of Jesus? He went into the land of the Gerasenes or the Gadarenes. There was a man possessed by many demons and he graciously cast out the demons and he placed them into a herd of swine. And these swine, these pigs indwelt by evil spirits, they raced headlong over a cliff. It's the situation being shown to us in these final generations. Changing the metaphor, Alan compares these final biographies in chapter 36 to a series of clips of automobile classes, crashes issued in a public service announcement to warn drivers against alcohol and drugs. Now what Alan and many other commentators observe is the brevity of these accounts compared to the other accounts of Second Chronicles. There's very little detail being given here about the individual kings. There's much more detail provided in the record of Second Kings. But here in Second Chronicles, it's not the individual accounts, but it's the accumulated effect of the whole. That's what we're being shown. Their shared experience and the singular result, they lived apart from God in unbelief. They were governed by the flesh with its sinful desires and they led the nation into the grave. If you live according to the Spirit, you will die, Romans 8.13. Now Paul's teaching in Romans 8 on the stark realities of life and death in the flesh is interesting because they are found in a chapter that is renowned for its emphasis on God's sovereign grace. If someone says to you, what, what do you know about Romans 8? You're going to speak of grace, living by grace and the, and the blessings of grace. And we think of the, the concluding words of Romans 8 that speaks of God's grace triumphing in the end. He concludes, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how that chapter ends. And likewise, for all the inevitable, depressing inevitability of Judah's descent into judgment, Second Chronicles concludes, this chapter concludes on the theme of God's grace that is still there. For all of this, God's grace is waiting his people in the end. For while the flesh fails, the word of God endures without failing. And for this reason, Martin Selman comments, though Israel has reached a dead end, God's word knows no dead ends. Because of God's unfailing promise to save, even this bleakest of chapters leading to judgment has grace in the end for those who turn, who repent and believe. Well, let's look at these details when godly King Josiah 
we remember when he discovered some chapters ago, he discovered the lost book of the covenant, the book of Deuteronomy. And he saw that the, the, the curses that it warned were curses that his own kingdom deserved. And you remember that he consulted with a nearby prophetess, her name was Huldah, in the city of Jerusalem. And, and she told him that because his heart was tender before the Lord, uh, God's judgment would not appear until Josiah himself had died, Second Chronicles thirty four twenty eight. Well, Josiah did die. The previous chapter ended, 606, at the Battle of Megiddo, where he was slain in battle. And then the ensuing 22 years, there's 22 years covered in this chapter, they see a progression of unworthy sons who sit on Judah's throne. Now, the first was named Jehoahaz, also named Shalom. Jeremiah calls him Shalom. We don't actually know much about him. Apparently, uh, because he followed his father's anti-Egyptian policies, and Jehoahaz was selected by the people. We're told that the people of the land took him and made him king in his father's place. Remember, Josiah had been opposed to both Assyria and Egypt. That's why he opposed Pharaoh Necho in battle. And his son apparently kept that policies, and so the people put him on the throne at age 23, but he would only reign for three months, and that is because of that victory where Pharaoh Necho had defeated the army of Judah. And that granted him a sort of lordship over Jerusalem. And after his defeat by the Babylonians at the Battle of Carchemish, he came to Jerusalem and he removed this anti-Egyptian king who knew that the pharaoh of Egypt did not want an anti-Egyptian king on the throne. Verse 3, the king of Egypt deposed Jehoahaz in Jerusalem and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. Well, his older brother, Eliakim, was crowned in his place, his name being changed to Jehoiakim, the name of which, ironically, means the Lord has raised up. It was not the Lord who raised him at all. It was Pharaoh. Well, Jehoiakim may not be blamed for taxing the people the way that he did. After all, they had to pay this massive tribute to Egypt. But he can be blamed for the extraordinary opulence for which his reign is known. Archaeologists have found the the remains of one of his great palaces, and they're astonished by the remarkable decadence that he enjoyed. Interestingly, Josephus says after he had it built, he then refused to pay the workers who built built his palace. But this was in a time of great economic uh, hardship for the nation, It reveals the mean and selfish spirit of Jehoiakim that has earned him comparisons with the Roman emperor Nero. Remember, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. It was all about his own pleasures, his own uh, wealth and glory. So it was with Jehoiakim. And you remember, he was pro-Egyptian. That is why he was put on the policy. And that brought him into conflict with Babylon. If you're not going to trust the Lord, you have to choose between your local neighbors, and there is, in this case, no actual good choice. Now, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar brought his army to Jerusalem, verse 6, and bound him in chains to take Jehoiakim to Babylon. Now, it's hard to understand when this would have taken place, how this fits in with the biblical claim that Jehoiakim actually died. In 598, 11 years into his reign, the, uh, uh, he, had in, he had incensed the uh, Babylonians, 588 that is, uh, he, had, he had incensed the, the, the Babylonians by his pro-Egyptian policy. And we're told here that he was taken in chains to Babylon. Now one solution is that the chronicler is referring in this case not to the 598 BC arrival of Babylon, during which Jehoiakim did die, but it seems it's actually referring to an earlier visit that took place in the year 605 BC. Our source for this actually is the Babylonian Chronicle, which re- the, the archaeological records of Babylon, which show that after his victory over the Egyptians and Assyrians at the Battle of Carchemish, Nebuchadnezzar imposed his rule over Palestine. Jehoiakim would have had to accept this claim, and it seems that he was forced to pay a forced visit. By the way, it seems that it was in 605 that Daniel and his three friends, that that first deportations, uh, that is when he went to Babylon. 
It was then after Jehoiakim rebelled against Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar came back in 598 and Jehoiakim died shortly before he arrived. Now, when Jehoiakim died after his 11-year reign, his son Jehoiakim came to the throne. This 18-year-old king would reign for only three months before Nebuchadnezzar removed him and took him into captivity in Babylon. What's interesting is it seems that Jehoiakim, the rest of his life, was considered by the people, certainly by the exiles, as the actual legitimate king. The book of Kings certainly takes the perspective that though he went into into exile, he was the one through whom the line passed. But back in Jerusalem, his uncle Zedekiah, Zedekiah was another son of Josiah, he was enthroned in his place. He would reign over the remaining 11 years before Jerusalem's fall. Now, again, the brevity of these accounts is intended to highlight what these kings had in common, namely their sin and unbelief. Jehoiakim, verse 5, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. So did Jehoiakim, verse 9. So did Zedekiah, verse 12. Moreover, what was true of these kings was also true of the people in general. And it was because of this unabated plunge into down-spiraling sin that God finally brought an end to the kingdom. Now, there's three emphases. You may have noticed them in these short accounts uh, and, uh, of what happens when the people fall under God's judgment through sin. And the first of them is bondage. Uh, They turned their back on the Lord, and they did not. We, We saw this in our morning sermon. They did not arrive at liberty, but rather they exposed themselves to the harsh control of stronger powers. Jehoahaz is callously removed by Pharaoh Necho. He thought nothing of imposing his will, his own puppet king, on Jerusalem's throne. But then in turn, Nebuchadnezzar did the same thing. He put Zedekiah on Judah's throne, uh, not to serve the people, but to serve his own imperial interests. We do not gain control over our lives and our affairs by turning to sin. If Judah's kings and if their people did not do what these despots commanded, well, they were more than willing to come back with violence to do what they did do, destroy the city. Ultimately, they took the survivors into exile, finally, in 587 B.C. We're reminded of Jesus saying, anyone who sins is a slave to sin in John 8. Jake Gresham Machen put it this way, emancipation from the blessed will of God always involves bondage to some worse taskmaster. That's the picture here. The effects of this sin and unbelief, this covenant unfaithfulness to the Lord, was it subjected them to bondage. The only true freedom is found in the Lord. Now, secondly, we notice that in each of these episodes in which the kings of Judah come under foreign control, the nation is impoverished. That's another thing that sin does. It impoverishes our lives. They're going to pay a heavy tribute. Pharaoh Necho imposed a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. Nebuchadnezzar took the precious vessels of the house of the Lord. Now, if you've been following Chronicles, and I know we've done it inter, 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 you know, on and off, but if back in the other days, God's king, the faithful kings, they received tribute. They didn't pay tribute. They received tribute. They had a God who provided for their needs. And this is the blessing of walking in faith with the Lord. Oh, there's many hardships in life. But we are able to know that we have a loving Father. He cares for our needs. Sometimes we may be like the prophet Elijah. Maybe we're oppressed and the Lord sends his ravens to the brook Cherith and he puts little pieces of bread in our mouth. Nonetheless, we are not forsaken. Psalm 34 says, his angels surround those who trust in him. But we forfeit that provision, that prosperity that God gives whenever we turn from him, turn from faith into sin. Now, far from elevating the quality of our life, the conflict and waste brought into our lives, I put it this way, sin devalues the currency of our experience. And it, most of all, leaves us impoverished in the things that really matter the things of God. We think of Jesus' parable of the rich fool. Oh, he had, in this case, the ungodly man had lots of money. It's in Luke chapter 12, and he had storehouses, but it was all he had. 
the parable is a very interesting one because he's, he's talking to himself because he has no one else. No one wants to be around him because of the impoverishment of his life, though he had grain and possessions in great abundance. But then the Lord came to him and required him to give up his life. And Jesus concludes the parable, thou fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, but is not rich toward God. Surely in this most, isn't it interesting that we live in the most materialistically abundant age and then the, the, the rates of depression and suicide. These are complicated issues, I know, but they're also not complicated. An impoverishment that comes by committing ourselves to the ways of sin. Now, interestingly, the third feature is the repeated desecration of the Lord's temple. It's what's highlighted here. And of course, remember, the chronicler cares very much about the temple. Our study of Second Chronicles began with detailed accounts of, of Solomon building the temple and the purpose of praise and, and prayer of intercession through the blood atonement sacrifices and, and, the, and the, the great consecration prayer that, that uh, Solomon prayed. And of course, he's, he's writing this to the restoration community whose task it is to rebuild the temple. And so they're to notice there's a, there's a relationship, a cause and effect relationship between the abominations that were told in verse 8 Jehoiakim did, that was the bringing in of idols actually into the temple of the Lord. And so the people through their unbelief, through their ungodliness by assimilating into the worship of the culture around them, they themselves began the desecration of the Lord's house. The sacred vessels are taken as spoils to the temple of false gods. Nebuchadnezzar does that. And the result is in sin, false religion that to which we embrace ceases to function as religion is supposed to do. I use the term religion in a pejorative sense mainly. But, but our faith, the worship, religion, faith in God, our faith system does not triumph, does not have answers. There was no answers found in the temple. There were, it was a place of effectual prayer. But these are people who pray in vain. It was a place of intercession and mediation with God. But with true faith removed, their religion became in vain. Is that not true of the spirit of our age? This very description a generation, 22 years. That's amazing how fast it can happen after the fall of a godly king. Now, we know from Jeremiah that even in Josiah's great days, most of the people were not following. It was an uphill fight for Josiah. But 22 years of the reigns of his children, and they become slaves. Their lives become impoverished. Their spirituality, their religion becomes utterly uh, despoiled and in vain. And surely these are all the things that the Apostle Paul meant when he wrote in the book of Romans, the wages of sin is death. Well, the reign of Judah's final king, Zedekiah, is given more details. By the way, it occurred to me, this is likely to be the only time in your life when you will hear morning and evening sermons on Zedekiah, king of Judah. Do not expect to happen by God's providence, likely again in all of your lives. It's a big day in that respect. And in so many respects, he's just like the others, like the other kings. Verse 12, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. But we're told specifically in verse 12 that he did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. Now, by the way, we're on, these are the very chapters we're beginning right now. The, the, the interactions in, in our morning series between Jeremiah and Zedekiah. And it's a complicated thing because, uh, because Zedekiah is a double-minded man. He doesn't have strength of character, so he worries. So there'll be times when he, he, he summons Jeremiah, do you have a word from the Lord? Oh, he does have a word from the Lord. He gives the word from the Lord, and so he persecutes him because it was not the word of the Lord that he wanted. He would not humble himself before the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. Jeremiah will be treated as a traitor primarily. I mean, in a worldly sense, you have to be sympathetic. They're facing this dreadful military conflict. And here's the prophet telling them that they're doomed, that all they can do is surrender. But that was the truth. That was the truth. 
And so he shut up God's voice by imprisoning the prophet. The point being made here is the vital issue that takes place when the word of God is spoken to us. You realize what a thing it is to hear the preaching of God's word in the church? What a thing it is to take up your Bible and read it. Oh, you absolutely should be doing these things. But then it is vitally important how you respond when God speaks. The Bible is the word of God. It bears the authority of God. The only way in which we rightly receive it is by humbling ourselves. Oh, how I remember my first systematic theology class. At Westminster Seminary, my professor was Sinclair Ferguson, very dear to my heart. And the very first thing he said was, we must understand that the mode, the only proper mode of doing systematic theology is that of repentance. We must come before the Lord prepared to be corrected, prepared as humble as children to be taught by a loving and wise father. If we begin the task of theology in any other mood, any other mode than that of abasement before a sovereign God, we think of Job when he finally came to his senses in Job 40. He says, I have put my hand over my mouth. He was asking the Lord to speak. You know, the Lord doesn't mind questions when it's that humble spirit. I am the high and holy God, he said, but I dwell in the contrite heart. He is imminent to the humble spirit that trembles at his word. How do you respond when the Bible speaks? The Bible, for instance, tells you that you are an unworthy sinner. That's what the Bible says to you. It says that you are guilty. In fact, you were born guilty, but you have compounded that guilt with your own guilt that God is just and right to condemn you with eternal wrath. How do you respond? Do you respond hard-heartedly? Do you humble yourself or do you harden your heart because of the offense you have when it is almighty God who speaks to you? The Bible insists that we can do nothing on our own to commend ourselves before the holy God. There is no work you can do. There is no good deed by which you can be justified. There is no romantic quest that you can fulfill that will cause you to be special in God's sight. There is no check that you can write or deposit you can make in the account that will, that will cause God to accept your donation as it were. Are you outraged? Is, is your pride, is your desire to be approved on your merit and for your glory, is it offended? Well, the Bible presents to us Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as the one and only mediator between God and man. Will we humble ourselves? Will we call upon his name for mercy and salvation? It is only with a humble approach to the truth of God's word, that we ever will be saved. And that's being highlighted here. He was not humble. You would think of all people of all generations, but isn't it true of our generation? If there's been a generation, if there have been those before, but surely ours is one of them where it's not working, where unbelief and secularism and the pride of man and the utopian schemes are causing misery and collapse all around us, we would expect there to be humility. But we remember... Paul in Romans 8, the man who, who lives according to the flesh cannot please God. He's at, enmity, he's at enmity to God. He cannot escape in his flesh that death. He must be saved by grace alone. Well, it's no surprise that being unwilling to humble himself before the word of God, and we're going to see this very soon unfolding in the book of Jeremiah. It was inevitable that he was rebellious in his dealings with men. We saw that this morning in the false and the corrupt covenant over liberty. They, they, they were not men of integrity. And so also was Zedekiah. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. Nebuchadnezzar was a man of nobility. He was a savage man. But he, there was common grace at work in his life. And you'll see it in the book of Daniel. And he, he made, apparently, Zedekiah enter into his suzerainty by an oath before God. And yet he would not keep it. He was a rebel in his heart. 
If you ask me to sum up, what is the essence of sin in our generation? Surely it is rebellion with a proud spirit before the true and living God. What folly. Well, the sum of his character and reign is found in verse 13. He stiffened his neck. He hardened his heart against turning to the Lord. That's referring to the episodes that unfold, all the disappointments. None of his schemes work. God's word keeps pressing in, but rather than softening his heart, like Josiah, who was, his heart was tender before the Lord. No, he stiffened his neck. He hardened his heart against the Lord. Now, Jesus would explain all this in the final days of his life when in Jerusalem he told the parable of the wicked tenant. And he compared the kingdom of God. He compared Jerusalem, the old covenant people, to a vineyard. A man owned a vineyard. He planted the vineyard and he put people in charge to to work the vines and to give him the the grapes and, and and the produce. And he sent a servant to them and they, they abused the servant and they sent him away. This was the prophets. This is what they hardened their hearts. They resented the fact that they were, for, they were to live for God. It was to be his glory, his prophet as it were, that was to be found through their faith. And then finally, after many episodes, the vineyard owner sent his own son. He thought, surely they will respect my son. But Jesus said, when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Matthew 21, 38 to 41. Now it is Jesus who makes the connection that what they were doing in his own time, he was the son. And we think of the the way they were proud and hardened of heart. You think of the episodes where, where Jesus performed miracles and he spoke the word of God in marvelous ways and they hated him for it. It's remarkable. But in the final days, when Jesus, when they were actually hatching the plot to crucify Jesus, they were aware that he had just the previous couple of days, he had raised Lazarus from the dead in that little town of Bethany, right over the hills outside Jerusalem. People knew it. There were people at the, they they knew it. They saw it. They knew he was the son of God. He had risen a dead man from the grave, but they hardened their heart. And it was for this reason that they were destroyed. Now, the account of the fall of Jerusalem is very brief. It's described in verses 17 to 20. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword. The house in the house of their sanctuary had no compassion on the young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king and his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. They burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Judah." Well, what's important to the chronicler is not the fact, really not the details of the fall of Jerusalem. His readers knew them all too well. In maybe the year 475, about 100 years later, this is written. They knew the details. No, it was the reason. It was the folly. It was the unbelief. Now, one explanation, one of the Old Testament Final explanations for why Jerusalem fell is found in 2 Kings 24, verses 3 to 4. I'll read it to you. The king's account, describing the same thing, says, Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Now that's going back couple of generations and the old testament says that when manasseh erected those altars in the valley of gehenna and they began sacrificing their children in the pagan abominations it was done at that time and god resolved that he would bring judgment upon the nation and this is just all confirmed it's not the individual 
choices made by these kings, but it's the collected uh, rebellion against God and the wickedness and the abomination that brought the judgment upon them. My friends, the Bible says the same thing about the final judgment that is to come. Revelation 20 says the books will be opened and they will be judged by all the works, by all the deeds that they will be performed. You hear hear all sorts of things about the final judgment. We're living in an evangelical age that doesn't doesn't have much confidence, doesn't like the idea of the final judgment. I I saw a a theological survey among evangelicals recently in which the majority of evangelical Christians denied that there would be a final judgment. Well, it is God's word that tells us there will be, and the judgment will be for sins committed. And so it was in the fall of Jerusalem. But I I want to direct you to verses 15 to 16, where there's a somewhat different, it's a complementary take upon the same theme. It's a vitally important one. Verses 15 to 16, why did Jerusalem fall? Why the slaughter? Why the destruction? Why the burning of the city and the temple? The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against the people until there was no remedy. What was the reason for the judgment of Jerusalem? What is the the same reason? for the final judgment and the casting of souls into hell who stand before God with their sins unforgiven because they are guilty of transgression because of the evil they committed. But there is another reason, and it's because God who had compassion God who, who had the gospel preached to them. God, and of course, this goes further into the New Testament. Jesus draws a straight line. God who sent his own son, who lived and walked among the people and who preached a lot that the grace and truth, the mercy of God and sinners. What, what is the meaning of all those healings? It's how God's grace responds to the scourge of sin. And then that same son of God died on the cross souls, guilty souls will be in hell. Yes, in just punishment for the wickedness of their sins, but also because though mercy was offered to them, they hard-heartedly spurned it. My friend, why should that be you? What is the point of being proud when the Bible speaks the truth about our sin. What is the point of being hard-hearted when Scripture says there is no work you can do? There is nothing for your own pride. You must humble yourself at the foot of the cross. You must look to the blood of Jesus and look to the Son of God and say, my only hope is that he has shed his blood for me. Every soul who is in hell who heard the gospel and refused it will be there, yes, in just punishment for their sins, but also because mercy and grace from a compassionate God. That's why he kept sending the prophets. He wasn't being a nagging, badgering God. He was being a persistent, faithful, loving, and compassionate God. And their judgment ultimately resulted from their rejection of the gospel. You know, Jesus says this happens to cultures, to cities. It happens to covenant children who are nurtured in the faith that walk away. He said, woe to you, Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum, his base of operation. For if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen and heard what you had heard, they would have repented. And he says the judgment on those who heard and rejected the gospel will be worse. Well, the chronicler points out there was no remedy. And what he means by that is that the time had come Sometimes you say, shouldn't there be one more chance? Shouldn't there be one more chance? The time had come in the omniscience and the wisdom of God. C.S. Lewis makes an interesting comparison as he's very apt at doing. And he, he talks about a student who simply does not have the aptitude to pass the test. And there's a desire on the part of the student, on the parents, to to take the test one more time, to take one more class to do it. And Lewis says that the master often knows when the boys and the parents do not, that it really is useless to send him for the exam one more time. 
finality must come sometime. And it does not require, getting back to the text, a robust faith to believe that the omniscience of God knew when finality had come. There was no remedy on their side of the equation and the time of God's judgment had come. Well, the fall of Jerusalem and the exile of the people is depicted here as having occurred by God in fulfillment of his word. That's what's being shown here. God had prophesied, he had warned, he had predicted it in in very specific and, and in many different kinds of ways. His word had told what would happen and the word of God comes true in the end. We see that being the case, by the way, with the duration of the exile. Well, that's emphasized here. Even how long the exile lasted is, is determined by the Lord in advance. Look at verse 22. Now the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Now Jeremiah had prophesied 70 years of exile. Scholars differ over how to count it. I've argued that that the counting should begin at 609 B.C. When the Babylon, the language of Jeremiah specifies, it's when the Babylonian Empire puts, when it exercises its full suzerainty, that is when the 70 years begin. It continues uh, from 609 B.C. to 639 B.C. when the decree of Cyrus comes, uh, is given. It is occurring according to the sovereignty of God by the Lord and in fulfillment of his word. Now this is the point of verse 21, a very interesting detail that they were there until the establishment of the king of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill the 70 years. Now that is referring to the stipulation of Leviticus chapter 25, 1-7, the very remarkable thing, that the people of Israel were on every seventh year, they were to grant to their land, the agricultural plots, a Sabbath. That means they were not to farm. Now imagine that plan, going to farmers today and saying, okay, you're going to farm six years, the seventh year you're not going to do any farming. And they would say, well, how are we going to eat? And this was the whole point. You're going to trust the Lord. You're going to give. By the way, the Sabbath is a sign of the sovereignty of God. The reason we can rest on the seventh day is because it does not all depend on our labor. Because we have a sovereign God in whom we rest and we give him glory. And and we we set aside our worldly activities and we rest in him. And they could set aside their farming. And he was so faithful. By the way, not once did they do this. But this was a stipulation of Leviticus 25, they were to give the land its Sabbath rest. Well, if they did not take seriously the word of God, let it not be said that God did not take seriously the word of God. I can imagine this detail, it sort of dropped out of nowhere and someone going, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, I've had people say to me, nobody cares about these little details in the Old Testament. Oh, someone does, my friend. Someone does. The Lord cared and he gave the land Sabbath, the rest that he stipulated, the 70 years. And of course, he had a redemptive purpose. Richard Pratt shows that by the means of the exile, the land was refreshed and prepared for new occupants when they returned from Babylon. Well, the wonderful end of this chapter in this book is that in the end, because the word of God must be and would be fulfilled. There is hope. There is life for the people of God. Do you realize that's where our hope is? Do we realize that's where life is found? Because God's word will never fail. He had prophesied the judgment because his word will be fulfilled. The judgment came. He had prophesied the duration of it. The word of God would be fulfilled. And that is why there's a hope of life and mercy the land was, was to be given its rest. And though they did not count, God kept a record and he fulfilled his word. The land received its rest. And because of that, there is grace in the end. And that is because what, my friends, is the message of God's word. If we say, here's the great truth, the word of God must be fulfilled, the word of God will be fulfilled, well then here's the question, what is the message of the word of God? By the way, that is a vital question in our hour. 
do, that we know. What is the meaning of the Bible? What is the message? What is the proclamation of the scriptures and God's word? I, I'm not sure our culture knows that we know the answer. They probably have drawn other conclusions, probably unfairly, but with good reason. What does the Bible teach? What is the Christian message? My friend, the Christian message is that there is grace from a compassionate God for sinners, and there, that grace is there at the end. This is what makes Second Chronicles, and as we conclude our studies of Second Chronicles tonight, this is what has made it such a blessed book. One of the differences between Kings and Chronicles is the timing of it. It was written, the Kings was written to the Jewish people who were in Babylon in exile. If I had to subtitle Kings, I would subtitle it, What Went Wrong So That This Happened to Us. But Chronicles is written a little later. It's not to the exiles in Babylon, but it's that community that's coming out of Babylon and has come back to the city. And it's subtitled. And this makes a difference in what episodes are highlighted. It would have the subtitle, Will God Still Have Grace for Us Despite Our Sin? And here's the resounding yes. Do you wonder if you've gone too far from God? Do you wonder if the pit you've dug for your life is too deep for light ever to shine there? Well, to consider the grace that is there at the end of Second Chronicles. You know, one thing it shows, let me just read it, it's so wonderful. The final verses. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it into writing. And you go, where did the Bible ever make a proclamation about Cyrus, king of Persia? And the answer is the prophecy of Isaiah. Make several prophecies. Let me read Isaiah 44, 28. God says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Now, now Jeremiah is writing that over a hundred years before the time of Jeremiah. I'm sure if you said to Isaiah himself, who's Cyrus? He would go, don't ask me questions like that. I'm the mouthpiece. But God's word prophesied that there would be a ruler over his people. His name would be Cyrus. And when that happened, he actually issues his decree in the first year. It's actually one of the first things that he does. Why? Because the God who gave his word fulfilled his word. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, and therefore he made his proclamation. There is life, there is hope, because God's word will never fail. And the message of God's word is grace from a God of mercy for those who will turn to him and believe. Andrew Stewart writes, Isaiah foretold that God would use a most unlikely person to deliver his kingdom, Cyrus, a future king of an empire that did not even yet exist. Well, practically the first thing Cyrus did was issue the decree with which our book ends. Thus Cyrus, king of Persia, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. And so it was, and the people returned. 500 years after the decree of Cyrus, the Lord would fulfill another word. He would fulfill the word of Jesus Christ. He would send the true deliverer, the true king from the line of David who would bring salvation to his people. And though the city was destroyed justly in the time of these kings of Judah, because of God's word fulfilled through Cyrus, the people of God were still there. The the land of God, the word of God was still alive amidst the people. And the promises of God continue to offer eternal life to those who believe. They continue to offer them to us today. I love the the final words. Let him go up. Actually, it's an abbreviation. If you just turn the page in Ezra, you'll see the chronicler actually edits it and cuts it off. We're going to end right there. How are we to respond? 
to this gospel message in the bleakest of judgment and darkness, the truth about us and our world, those who live in the flesh cannot please God. The one who lives in the flesh must surely die. This is the epitaph on our whole world, and there is grace from God in his unfailing world. Let us go up. Now, he's thinking of the temple, of course. They're going to rebuild the temple. Let us go up and worship. My friends, let us worship him. Let us go up to him. Let us lift our faces to him. Let us give him praise and glory and honor because of his grace that never fails in the end. He means as well, let us exercise faith in his promises because they never fail. They are new every morning. They bring salvation to everyone who repents and believes. And of course, they are fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ, God's Son, Let us go up to him. Let us look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Let us look to him in the humility of faith. Let us give him praise and glory. Let us find salvation, for we will find it in him. This gospel word will not fail. There is grace. This end to which the grace was leading was the coming of Christ. My friends, let us receive the promise of God's word. Let us to him go up. Father in heaven, we pray your blessing. We thank you for so many lessons in our study of Second Chronicles, so many interesting figures and stories. We're really grateful for all that. But Father, we know the true hero of this book is you. That you and your sovereign grace, the grace that you gave through your son, you, you stand over it in mercy and judgment. And so when even so wicked a person as King Manasseh, when he repented, you saved him. And when Asa was hardening his heart many chapters ago, you sent a message to him that your eyes roved to and fro throughout the world, that you have grace for those whose hearts are given to you. And we think of the prayer that we read there that Solomon said. He says that if we will humble ourselves and seek your face and pray that you will heal our land. Father, we thank you for the grace that was there even at the end of this book, even in that dreadful hour. Lord, that grace is with us today. Your word, your gospel word, the wonderful message of the Bible, it's still true. You are still sovereign Its promises will be kept. Well, Father, I pray that everyone who hears my voice would believe, that we would humble ourselves before you, that we would yield, that we would go up to you in worship, in praise, in faith, being saved by your grace through faith in your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.